Tonight we begin our series on the Old Covenant. As I have already said, this is not going to be a series where we work consecutively through verses and chapters of a book of the Bible as we normally do, but rather we're going to systematize um, our study. We're going to look at um, what the Bible teaches about the Old Testament by topic, by theme, and so we're going to be pulling in different passages to show uh, what is the Bible's teaching on this matter. This is still a form of expository preaching, it's not consecutive exposition, but as our goal is to expose what the Bible teaches concerning this, as opposed to just invent or twist what the Bible teaches or invent things from my own mind or whatever, as our goal is still to expose what the Bible teaches, this is still a form of expository preaching. And tonight, we are beginning this topical expository series on the Old Covenant. Now there are a couple of things that we should know. First, when we say old, we mean old as opposed to new. In Jeremiah 31, for example, we read the promise of a coming new covenant. Hebrews 8 picks up on this promise and says that it has been fulfilled in Christ's covenant. So Christ's covenant is the new covenant. The covenant that was active at the time of the promise when Jeremiah wrote, back in Jeremiah 31, by implication then, was the Old Covenant. Jeremiah said there is going to be a new one. When the new one comes, the one that Jeremiah was operating under becomes... We have a large truck passing outside and so some noise, so that, that's the pause for those of you watching on the live stream. Jeremiah prophesies about a new covenant, which is coming. When that new one comes, the one that Jeremiah was operating under then becomes old. That is what we mean when we say the old covenant. Specifically then, what we mean when we say the old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. That was the covenant that Jeremiah was operating under during the time of his ministry when he looked forward to a coming new covenant. The Old Covenant, then, is the same thing as the Mosaic Covenant. That's what we mean when we say Old Covenant. So we could say Mosaic Covenant, and we'd be meaning the exact same thing. This is an important point, because there were multiple Biblical covenants, in effect, prior to Christ's Covenant. And so I want to be clear what I mean whenever I say Old Covenant in this series. Now the big idea of tonight's message is that the Old Covenant was a covenant of works, but not the covenant of works. And I'll explain that as we go, beginning with a review of the covenant of works. So the original covenant of works was between God and Adam, and in Adam, all whom Adam represented. 
there was a covenantal structure in the beginning at creation where God entered into covenantal relationship with mankind. Adam was appointed as the representative of mankind and there were defined terms of relationship, which is what a covenant is, between God and Adam concerning his own estate and welfare and also the estate and welfare of everybody whom he represented. Theologians have called this covenant the covenant of works, though that is admittedly extra-biblical terminology. Now some people object to this concept of the covenant of works in the beginning with Adam. And one of the reasons why they object to this concept is because the old covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, remember, is called in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, the first covenant. So in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, it says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so they say, well, if there was a covenant of works with Adam in the garden in the first place, that would have been the first covenant. So then God can't come along later and call the old covenant the first covenant. Well, one of the problems with that is that the new covenant is called the second. And by the time we get around to the uh, covenant that Christ mediates, there have actually been multiple biblical covenants in the biblical record already. And so this language of first and second covenants in Hebrews chapter 8 is not saying ultimately the first and ultimately the second. Rather, it is describing the first of two, which are being discussed in Hebrews 8, and the second of two, which are being discussed in Hebrews 8. That there was a original covenant with Adam on behalf of he and his posterity in the beginning is evident from a couple of different passages. One is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace, pardon me, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Listen, this is a key, key uh, verse here. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, another key verse. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And another key verse. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's not my objective tonight to exposit that passage and explain everything that's in there, but but what you should see and what was pretty obvious, especially as I pointed out those three consecutive verses in the middle, is this concept of the one for the many. Romans 5 clearly teaches us that Adam acted on behalf of the many. Well, I can't plunge my own descendants into guilt and corruption because of my sin, nor can I rescue my descendants from guilt and corruption because of my obedience. The reason being that I am not, I have not been appointed by God as a covenantal representative of my offspring. So the reason that Adam could do it was not because he was a natural biological father of all who would follow him and therefore could act on their behalf, saving them from death and sin and hell by his obedience or plunging them into guilt and corruption. The reason that he could either act in a way that would lead to their blessing and their reward and their life or act in a way that would lead to their condemnation and death was because he was appointed as a covenantal representative for his posterity. And Romans 5 says that he was a type of one to come, namely Christ Jesus, who also acts as one on behalf of the many. And so again, Jesus doesn't just act, um, or is, isn't just able to act on behalf of others because he is biologically the father of them. For obviously in Christ's case, he didn't even have any biological children. So that can't be the basis of it. How can Jesus act as one person on behalf of the many? Because he's appointed as a covenantal representative. So in the beginning, Adam was clearly appointed as one who would act on behalf of the many. That was the terms of his relationship with God. That he would be a representative, that he would be a surety for his posterity. Their fate would be tied up in his. That was a covenantal arrangement. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22 says this, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This means that everyone who is in Adam dies. Everyone who is in Christ is made alive. So again, there is this idea that Adam acts as a representative of many, as Christ Jesus acts as a representative of many. If Adam is your representative, death is your estate. If Christ is your representative, being made alive is your fate. The Baptist Catechism 
Question 16 asks, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? The answer is, when God created man, he entered into a covenant of works with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. The Westminster Confession, chapter 7 and paragraph 2 says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and perpetual obedience. Baptists changed the wording of chapter 7 uh, in our 1689 confession, but retained the substance. And later on in our confession, uh, we read, though the, the phrase covenant of works isn't in our chapter 7, in chapter 20 of our confession, that phrase is used, which shows that Baptists didn't strike it from chapter 7 because we disagree with it. Um, whatever the reason for the wording change, it was not that. Because in chapter 20 and verse 1, or pardon me, chapter 20 and paragraph 1, we read that phrase, the covenant of works. And in chapter 19 and verse 1, we see, again, the articulation of the same principle. Did I say verse again? Chapter 19, paragraph 1. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart, and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. Okay, so we see this biblically in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, um, Genesis uh, uh, 2, 3. Uh, we see this also in the Reformed tradition, both the Westminster Standards as well as the Baptist Standards. The original covenant of works was the original terms of relationship, because that's what a covenant is. The original terms of relationship that God entered into with Adam. He was to obey perfectly and perpetually, and if he did so, he and his posterity, he and all whom he covenantally represented, which was everybody, the human race, would enjoy life and blessedness. But if he disobeyed, the human race would be plunged into guilt and corruption. And so it was a works-based covenant, which would result in either rewards or punishments, depending upon Adam's performance. This was the covenant of works in the beginning with Adam, with the whole human race. Okay? Now we know, obviously, what happened. Adam sinned. And, lo and behold, we were plunged into a state of guilt and corruption. Okay? So that was the original covenant of works. It was broken. And now the whole human race is guilty and corrupt. <clears throat> when I say now that the old covenant is a covenant of works, I don't mean that it is the same thing as the original covenant of works. What I mean, rather, is that the Old Covenant is also a works-based covenant. There is no promise of 
eternal life in the Old Covenant by obedience to the law. God doesn't say that if you can do this or do that, then I will reverse the curse and there will be no guilt and there will be no corruption and you will fix yourself and you will redeem your soul from hell by your obedience to the law. It is assumed that mankind is already guilty and corrupt. However, there is still blessedness and reward promised upon the condition of keeping the covenant, upon the condition of obedience, upon the condition of performance, upon the condition of works. As we read earlier from Exodus 19 and verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You want to be God's treasured possession? You want that reward? Then obey his voice and keep his covenant. You want to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Then obey his voice and keep his covenant. We see also in Deuteronomy 28, beginning with verse 1 and following, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, again, that word, if, if, really what I'm trying to highlight pretty much tonight is pretty much that one word, if, we just need to understand this is the nature of the old covenant. If you faithfully obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket, and your kneading bowl, etc., etc. And on it goes like that. You want all these things to happen to you? You want all this blessedness? If you obey, if you do, then these things will come to pass. Now verse 15 and following, Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out, etc., etc. Do you want those things to happen to you? No? Well, then don't disobey. Be sure to obey so that you can avoid the curse. Be sure to obey so that you can get the reward. You see the principle of this covenant? 
In Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, Paul says that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, again, I don't think any Israelite under the Old Covenant operated with the assumption that if they kept the commandments perfectly, they would stop being sinners and the corruption that Adam had plunged them into would be undone and they would be healed and restored back to a state of perfect innocency and they would never biologically, physically die, but rather the uh, degenerate, degenerative effect of sin upon their bodies year after year. Aging would stop. Aging would be reversed, in fact, and they would live forever, indefinitely, eternally, in vibrancy and health and youthfulness forever because of their obedience to the law. I don't think any Old Testament Israelite understood it that way. But there certainly was this idea that they would thrive, that they would flourish if they kept the law. And there was certainly this idea that if somebody kept God's law perfectly, they would actually be righteous. That makes sense, doesn't it? If somebody did not break God's law, God would consider them to be a righteous person and that they would merit reward. That principle was latent in the Old Covenant. This whole idea that you could do what God requires and God would reward you for it. But if you didn't do what God requires, God would punish you for it. This was the principle of the Old Covenant, which is why Paul says that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 to 34, but especially verse 32 will also speak to this concept. This is the promise of the new covenant, by the way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we're coming to the new covenant in a moment, but for now just look at what it says about the old covenant in this passage. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. What we should see there is that the old covenant was broken. God promises a new covenant, and he says it's not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. We see that the old covenant then was broken. This shows the conditionality of it. It was a works-based covenant. There was the possibility of keeping it or breaking it. And there were rewards attached to keeping it and promises attached to breaking it. The old covenant was clearly a works-based covenant. It theoretically held out human flourishing and life for the keeping of it, but it could not deliver on actually bringing about blessedness. Not because there was a problem with the covenant, but because there was a problem with the participants in the covenant. And not on God's end. When Hebrews 8-7 says that the old covenant was faulty, remember I read that uh, to you a few moments ago. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. When Hebrews 8-7 implies that the first covenant was faulty, it means that it was faulty in terms of not being able to bring about the ends that God desired for His people. In other words, that they would live and that they would flourish. The first covenant couldn't bring that about. That's what it means when it says that it was faulty. But the reason why it couldn't bring that about was not because of a deficiency in the covenant, but a, a deficiency in the participants of the covenant. And therefore it was not well suited to bring about the ends that God desired for His people. And in that sense it was faulty. But it was so reasonable. Obey and I will reward you. Disobey and I will punish you. It was just. God expected obedience. The creature to the Creator. Worship the creature to the Creator. Trust the creature to the Creator and promised provision, protection all the way through. It was a good covenant. It was a reasonable and just covenant. But it could not bring about the blessedness that God desired His people to have. Not because the covenant itself had a deficiency, but because the participants had a deficiency. And so in that sense, assuming and given the variable that the people had a deficiency, it was not a well-suited covenant to bring about the blessedness. And that's why Hebrews 8, that's the sense in which Hebrews 8 says that it was faulty. What was needed then in order to bring about the blessedness that God intended for His people to have was a new 
covenant. This is what was promised in Jeremiah 31. And Hebrews 8 picks up on that. Right after Hebrews 8 and verse 7. For if that first covenant had been flawless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, again, which corroborates what I just said. The fault was with them, which is what made the covenant faulty. The fault was with the people. God finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it goes on to quote from Jeremiah 31. And it explains that this new covenant is the covenant which Christ mediates. He applies the promise in Jeremiah 31 to that which Christ has accomplished. In verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. What we see is that in the new covenant, the law is not going to be external, but internal. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The implicit contrast being um, on their hearts and on their minds as opposed to on stone. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So God will see to it that all of the people in the new covenant actually know him. And so people won't merely be in the covenant by virtue of just their biology, being a physical descendant of Israel, but they will actually be people whose hearts know and are connected to the Lord. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Their iniquities and their sins cannot disqualify them from getting the blessings of the covenant. Because in the new covenant, God is going to overcome their sins and their iniquities. And most importantly, there is this contrast between the covenant which was broken and the new covenant, which implies that the new covenant is not breakable. The reason being that our surety, our representative, has already successfully kept the terms of the covenant for us so that a broken covenant is not a possibility. You see, in the Old Covenant, it was the people who had to obey in order to merit the reward. In the New Covenant, it is Christ Jesus, our representative, who has to obey in order to merit the reward. And because He has done it, then we who are His, um, we who are represented by Him, 
receive the new covenant as unconditional. In other words, we can't sin ourselves out of the new covenant. If Christ is our representative, then one of the blessings of the covenant is that God will be merciful towards our iniquities and remember our sins no more. God will undertake, if Christ is our covenantal representative, to make sure that we know Him. God will undertake to make sure that His law is on our heart and is on our mind. So in other words, we don't have to get God's law into our heart and our mind in order to get into the covenant. We don't have to come to know the Lord in order to get into the covenant. We don't have to do something about our iniquities and our sins to get into the covenant. Rather, these things come to us because of the covenant. These are covenantal blessings. So, there were terms to fulfill in order to receive the blessedness of the new covenant. But Christ Jesus has fulfilled those terms for us. And so it's not a matter of us now being in a works-based covenant where we have to obey and perform and do certain things in order to get blessed. Rather, we are blessed, we receive the blessings of the new covenant because of the obedience of our representative, because of the obedience of our surety. See, Christ Jesus acted in the New Covenant as Adam acted in the original Covenant of Works, the one for the many. And so the, the New Covenant operates on this same principle that righteousness merits reward and that punishment merits disobedience, which was the same principle of the Old Covenant and the same principle of the original Covenant of Works, the New Covenant operates with the same principle. Righteousness leads to, uh, leads to reward, disobedience leads to punishment. But the difference is, instead of Adam, it's Christ. Instead of the people and their obedience, it's Christ and His obedience. In these ways, the New Covenant is contrasted both with the original covenant of works and with the Old Covenant, which was also a covenant of works. In the first place, it was conditioned upon Adam's obedience or disobedience. In the second place, in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, it was conditioned upon the people's obedience or disobedience. But in the New Covenant, it's not conditioned upon our obedience or disobedience, but upon Christ's. So Christ acts as a second Adam. Christ acts as a true and better Israel, actually doing what Adam should have done in the first place, actually doing what Israel should have done in response to the covenant at Sinai, actually obeying, actually keeping. And because he has done that as one for the many, we are blessed apart from our fulfillment of conditions, simply because He has fulfilled conditions for us.
Because the new covenant then is not a covenant of works, it is actually able to bring about blessedness. The covenant of works in the beginning with Adam did not bring about blessedness because Adam sinned and plunged us all into guilt and corruption. Especially after that fact, any subsequent covenant of works could never bring about blessing either. Because of our corruption. So Sinai, being one of those post-fall covenants of works, could never bring about blessedness for God's people. Because we could never fulfill its terms. But the new covenant comes to us not as a covenant of works, but as a covenant of grace. We are given what we do not deserve, what we, what we could never earn, apart from any consideration of our covenant-keeping and merit and obedience and righteousness. It comes to us as a covenant of grace because Christ has fulfilled all of the covenantal requirements for us. Therefore, not on my covenant keeping I stand, but on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. You see, the new covenant is better than the old. The covenant that Christ mediates is better than the old. The old covenant was a covenant of works. The new covenant is a covenant, the covenant of grace. And so not on my covenant keeping I stand, but on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood.